Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss, are we all grifters now? So Tim, what's a grifter and how have we become one or are we one? Well, the good news is for now, we're not grifters because we don't make any money on this show. Um, but what, this, this goes back to sort of one of the fundamental criticisms the Marxists make um, at capitalism or market relations in general. Uh, and one of the criticisms they get is uh, the only things that get which, which gets which gets produced is things for profit. Um, this is also a thing that UBI advocates will claim as well. People weren't scrambling for money to pay rents or for to buy food. Um, they wouldn't grift, um, and different kinds of goods would be produced. So in general, uh, what is the relationship between truth, if of course truth exists and is knowable? and the creation of content and money making. Content can range any from books to podcasts to YouTube videos um, um, to longer documentaries as well as movies. But recently an accusation that gets thrown at all sorts of people is the idea of grifting, which occurs on the YouTube podcast, YouTube scene, and other, various other podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes. There's a litany of one. In general, this sort of podcast ecosystem and YouTube production ecosystem. Uh, famously, Dave Rubin gets this thrown at him. And actually, one of the people that uh, I think Kyle Kaczynski uh, stated that David Rubin privately holds whatever view which will make him most marketable. Um, so you could view Dave Rubin as a sort of view marketing niche. Uh, uh, he used to work for the Young Turks as well. Now he's sort of has PragerU affiliations from my understandings, which is an interesting uh, journey to make. Um, now, I actually like Dave Rubin. I think there's something very honest, brutally honest and authentic about just saying being like a weather vane. Um, um, so, I, you know, I, I never sort of disliked Dave, Rub Dave Rubin, so to speak. Um, and Joe Rogan, who made this criticism himself, got a hundred million deal. So when Joe Rogan criticizes Dave Rubin, he got a hundred million deal for Spotify. And oh, interestingly, some of his episodes mysteriously with more hot topics got deleted. Um, and he also had to Joe Rogan, of course, gave the the uh, some what would be called vaccine misinformation, and he had to uh, give the sort of corporate boilerplate speech for a two-minute clip he had to put out. Um, so like, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain you know money might sell your soul here. Uh, uh, so 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 there is some kind of authenticity there. Um, now there's other YouTubers that do a lot of money. There's left YouTubers that clearly make a lot of money. I mean, I think the BLM leader got, bought a big mansion, um, and I would and the 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 guy who sells who sells the book he sells services for um, uh, uh, now he's not a YouTuber per se, but one of his clear markets is giving lectures and podcast interviews and selling his book. Uh, I can't think of his name, uh, uh, but he he talks. Uh, oh, it's it's. Ibrim X. I cannot, darn it, I cannot think of his name. But nonetheless, there's left-wing people. You know, Sam Cedar, I, I imagine, is not poor. Uh, the majority poor, has lots of views. He also used to work for MBC, MSNBC. Uh, I doubt Crystal or Cigar uh, are poor uh, uh, grifters. Poor insofar as they, they, they make plenty of money from their content. And of course, Stefan Molyneux and Jordan Peterson are probably both Patreon millionaires of some variety. Um, interesting enough, Glenn Greenwald, of all people, gets accused of that. Glenn Greenwald has an interesting backstory. He used to run The Intercept, and The Intercept uh, was funded by, I think, some centrist or left-wing billionaire, and he 
was given basically editorial free hand up until about 2016, 2017, when the Trump campaign, this is where Glenn Greenwald left, he could publish things on like Hunter Biden's laptop. So interestingly, you get a lot of money thrown at you by some backer who says that you have complete freedom, you actually lose that complete freedom. So this is one of the interesting relationship between money making and truth telling, so to speak, is that, you know, and, and speaking of one of the great, great truth travelers in history, Orwell died, fairly poor guy, uh, uh, so to speak. So there, it is an interesting relationship between money and that truth telling. Now, the Marxists, of course, would say, oh, well, what we need is public democratically funded, or the social democrat would say. Now, I don't know if you've ever listened to NPR here in the United States with it, but the NPR is quite atrocious and it's quite partisan. Uh, they get some surveys about it. I think 90% of their viewerships are Democrats. As David Friedman argued, they're not really a public good. They're a private good funded publicly. Um, you know, 90, the, the, the main funders of NPR are Democrats or social Democrats or progressive. Those are the funders of it. If they, if they would cease to produce content in their view, that the Democrats wouldn't, function, wouldn't fund them. Uh, now, alternatively, if they did Republican content, it would be reversed. Um, um, now, again, I'm not a partisan Republican, so don't, don't mistake me for that. I'm just making the point. And actually, interestingly enough, NPR still has to maintain the pretense of it. So unlike, let's say, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC or Bill Maher or somebody like that, they don't need to, you know, so the NPR hosts, and this is what makes them so totally hard to listen to, uh, is they sort of have to sort of maintain a pretense of being fair, whatever exactly fair means. Um, so those are sort of what, what publicly funded just means publicly funded by whom, um, by certain, you know, key figures in the Democratic Party or the Labour Party or whoever, the Tory, and uh, in different countries have different parties. So a lot of the public stuff isn't really public. It's public air quote. Uh, uh, so to me, the public doesn't fund it. I don't think North Korea or East Germany is a model either. Um, now, I mean, that might, it might, you know, Kim Jong-un or the, sort of the leader of East Germany might have have art or podcasts, will, will then be different types of media, of course. Um, um, but this is publicly funded, but publicly funded by whom? Um, so now let me make one final point. It's also worth pointing out this 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 grifting claim gets thrown at mega preachers of some variety. You know, your MacArthur's and your Joel Olsteins and various others. You know, they have huge followership. Now, I think oftentimes just haters hating. Um, these are sort of charismatic, intelligent people who attract viewers. And these smaller churches or smaller Christians just don't have the charisma or the arguments or that. Now, that could be the case. Or it could be the case that they're just selling um, snake oil um, and they're tailoring message to fit the audience, um, which, gonna, which, again, goes into the, the, the tailoring message. If you tailor a message to fit the audience, um, are you actually being a truth teller? So, But alternatively, uh, if you do it by ad selling, ad selling, you can't offend the advertisers. And this is the sort of Noam Chomsky point he makes in manufacturing consent and elsewhere that, you know, ads and the advertisers sort of limit, you know, the corporate press can't really go about outside of its advertisers. The subscription model also has problems because if you just get Patreon views, you can only offend your listeners so much. Um, um, if you think, because if you send your, your listeners so much, they might leave or they might go away. Uh, uh, so, so there, there is limitations of that, and there's also limitations of the sort of the uh, NPR publicly funded model. Um, and of course, let's, let's look at the world before YouTube uh, and outside of YouTube podcast scene and how that 
gets funded economically. Well, MSNBC, Fox News, The Guardian, uh, New York Times, you know, the, these organizations are also are funded by ads or subscriptions. And of course, you know, they don't offend their viewers. I mean, I don't think the end, I don't think the New York Times has even formally acknowledged the existence of the fact of the some of the Wuhan emails and certain aspects of that, as Alex Brenson points out. Um, so, so they clearly don't offend their viewers with certain ideas, uh, 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 and they clearly have sort of dodgy funding models. Um, you know, they, they 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 have backers, so to speak. Um, so, so you know, for all the criticisms that get thrown out of Dave Rubin, or you know, a Jordan Peterson, or Stefan Molyneux, or Glenn Wheeler as grifters, the people making the claims, you could just as easily say they're grifters. And, you know, Jordan Peterson might be a patriarch millionaire of some variety. I don't know that for a fact, but there were some counts of how much he was getting per month on that. He just factored that by a few months. You were there. You know, I, I'm going to say MSNBC or Fox News or New York Times, certain aspects of that, they have much more money to throw around than a Jordan Peterson does or Stefan Molyneux or, for that matter, a Sam Cedar or Ben Burgess. Um, so in this regard, I think YouTube is in YouTube podcast at all. And of course, YouTube has its own censorship uh, regime, too. Um, I, I, I'm fully aware of that. I'm not denying that. You know, Google podcasts, they all have their censorship regime, and they're probably going to get more censorious going future. Other, other models might come up. So it's with an overall, what do you think is the relationship between truth telling and the market or more specifically the sort of podcast YouTube market, which is some ways free because no one really has to pay for this. Although in the other ways people do pay, you know, people like Yaron Books get Patreon. So what is in the relationship there? What's, you know, with respect to like alternative forms of, or the old, the old regime, the ancient regime, the, you know, the BBCs and the NPRs as well as the sort of guardians of the New York Times, you know, do you think this is an improvement? So with, I've, I've, I made some rants on this topic and some of my thoughts on it. What do you make of the accusation? Are we all grifters? Well, I mean, it's nice to have money to do stuff you like doing. So there's nothing um, particularly off on that per se. I think we, we need to make a distinction uh, about um, saying what you think is true and having to be paid for it. Or just saying things that you think people think are true and so get paid for it. So in a sense, it's about honesty more than anything else. Um, do you put things out because you think they're right? Or do you put them out because you think people will pay you to put them out? Now, of course, is it a problem that you just now? Nah, I suppose you have a, a halfway position, which is you put things out you think are true. Uh, but only the things that you think other people will like and pay you for, to, to do so. So you might have some more sort of heretical uh, positions which may alienate some of your audience base. Um, that's, um, that, that's, that's certainly possible. Um, so, but when it comes to putting out things you think are true, um, I, I think you're more likely to get more uh, sort of self-censorship on such issues when there is more money at play. I, I think it's you're more likely to get people to say what they actually think are true when it's a form of income, it's not the form of income. Uh, the extent to which it's relatively unimportant for their income stream, it means, well, if you offend some of them, you get less, it doesn't really matter. 
But if it's something that's going to pay the bills, then, well, you have a larger incentive to manipulate what you say in such a way that it, it's going to be audience friendly. So when it comes to um, sort of the corporates or the, or the pre-internet era, I mean, did they really censor themselves? Did they say what they wanted to hear? Well, I suppose it depends on who. I mean, I suppose the editors will have done. Um, and of course, when you're a large sort of newspaper or ITV, you have major corporate sponsors and you basically are run by them. You have very, very expensive um you have very expensive outlays to sort of run as an organization then yeah you're probably going to have an editorial line that no we don't investigate this to some extent or well no we can't we can't describe it this way although when it comes to newspapers something to distinguish is sort of like the actual sort of on the ground facts reporting and the analysis thereafter i mean um youtube hasn't really changed sort of the on the ground okay what kind of happened uh sort of journalism what it sort of altered is the analysis um and sort of like context for information that's what it's um really changed what is sort of actually happened as it were to a large extent is uncontroversial in many cases um i would say things with respect to vaccine and coronavirus are different for that matter. I mean, that, that's always interesting. But I mean, prior to that, I mean, a lot of the time is what um, what was said wasn't necessarily a lie. It was just truthful, but misleading um, by sort of the, the sort of corporate press types. You know, that, that'd be the way you do it. And to be fair, that's the best way to influence people. So you can't claim that you, you aren't lying. Um, but the main thing sort of YouTube has done is have opened the floodgates. I mean, the barriers to entry are a lot lower. Uh, now, I suppose you could say for that reason, there's more people out there, which means more people can um, get what they want. And, well, that just means you're going to be um, tailoring it to the to the masses. But the other question is, is, who is your audience? I mean, Todd Lewis makes the interesting argument that he says that the, the, the socialist society wouldn't produce good art because he has to appeal to the um the lowest common denominator so everyone can buy into and fund and think it worthwhile that society provides the resources um, to produce this art for, for for the working man or for the the average man, as it were, uh, rather than, you know, just project creating things as you historically say for elite interests. So the sort of the aristocracy um, and so there's much more definable sort of aesthetic or things that they want. And, you know, you can. And also, you know, generally the, the audience of the aristocracy is probably more sophisticated than the average man, or, well, almost certainly in most cases. And so it's probably going to produce better art. So then there's a question, the question of audience. You know, who is the audience? And I think this is in, with respect to YouTube. I think the big change is people who actually care about finding stuff out and learning and not just being partisan actually now have a way of trying to find people who will provide that information for them. Whereas previously, it was a lot more difficult. Um, as you can say, in general, you can find books and things and actually learn things which were otherwise sort of gatekeepered and um, kept away from you. Now, of course, as grifting is people are going to be changing their what they're changing things so it suits their audience or their sponsors. Um, but as I say, the extent to which it's not a major for, form of income um, 
is is going to be is going to make them produce things that they think are true. And also, I'm going to say, your Patreon model, uh, unless it's the case that all your viewers have exactly the same views, is actually a better model than having a corporate sponsor because you upset this corporate sponsor. That's loads of money goes out the window. Whereas if it's um, a Patreon one, a couple of the, the listeners stop subscribing. Unless it's systematic be on the whole uh, sort of um, donator base, then you it's actually kind of more robust as it were as a content creator to actually do what you want to do. Because, well, as long as like 95 percent of people are happy than 90 percent, it's fine. Whereas if you if you're working for the corporates or whatever and you upset one major appetizer, well, then you screwed. So you don't do it. Um, so I reckon, yeah, I reckon there's probably more attempt at grifting. I reckon uh, people think, oh, it's a cycle, so it's a bit of money. But also at the same time, if you can find people who are genuinely interested in providing what they think is interesting information. And also, as a, as a side, loads of stuff on YouTube is made by people who don't even have any uh, money. They don't have any Patreon. I mean, the, the whole sort of economic model of like, oh, the public good argument, you know, oh, for, for the private sector won't produce uh, public goods because they're non-excludable and non-rival. There's no profit incentive, so they won't do it. I mean, taking that position to its, its logical conclusion, most of the content on YouTube you wouldn't think would have existed because it's non-excludable and non-rival, but it clearly does. Uh, so, yes, there is a lot of grifting, um, but I think there's more space for people who aren't grifters and are generally interested in saying things they think are true and interesting than there were under the old model. I'm first going to make a comment, then I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think of the merits? And you just, just sort of pointed out the public good um, argument uh, about you know, non-rival good, which relates to sort of classic libertarian economics. But what, what do you make of the sort of BBC, NPR uh, uh, shows in general? I, again, I've said I think they're quite terrible. And I think they have their own kind of agenda with a capital A. Um, this also sort of works with the sort of historical idea, you know, the Jeffersonian idea, you don't want an established church. This sort of Protestant idea. I brought up John McCarthy, uh, the mega born mega preacher. Um, there's also sort of thing that says you don't want an established church because because every 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 group has sort of an established base. So you know the so public goods. And this is the David Friedman argument. You know, people can claim that a thing is a public good, but you know it usually comes out that things that are actually public goods, you know, happens to have some sneaky there's, a, there's some sneaky clause and this this dam happens to prevent be funded by the farmers down there um the farmers upstream don't get as much benefits from it now that's just sort of a hypothetical example of a somewhat unrelated thing about public goods um but there's many things in here kickbacks pork barrel type spending and so forth um you know public goods are quite sneaky so you know why listen to npr you know it's not agenda free it has an agenda it's to make the progressive regulatory state to look good uh uh it's not that that's it's quite clear the agenda there now they make they might produce good quality content elsewhere for other topics um 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 i'm not sure if some of them you know there's there's sort of argument that old stuff used to be fairly good but this i think also applies to like you know art that's funded publicly as well some art that's pu funded publicly is quite good although although increasingly as of the late the elites and the elite taste and the pod uh i would argue are quite um bad so to speak uh, interestingly here in the united states some of the really interesting buildings that are old 
are made by what was a time where basically private or semi-private, not private in the Rothbardian sense, but rail corporations, like all the stations, all these sort of Greco-Roman you know, uh, railroad stations um, um, are all produced semi-privately, but are funded privately. You know, the stuff in the 1950s was was funded publicly, and it was all it's all the sort of brutal, nasty, brutalist architecture. It's all got torn down, um, um, to the most part, or just a few token pieces are left. So there is a sort of private model creates actually more anti-fragile or long lindy type um, stuff um, than public thing. And I think in my my experience, the you know I like the videos that are produced. If someone's producing as a hobby, this is actually how the Marxists actually theorize it. You know, the uh, the claim is that people don't have enough time to create things, so they have to be always working somewhere else. And if they didn't, I think this is what Adorno was arguing, everyone would be an Aristotle or a Plato. Now, that that I don't buy that claim. But I do think when people are doing it as uh, on their own will, and this is actually interesting what school forces people to do and learn things um, and read and consume stuff um, that they don't want to read. This is a comment we've been through on a number of episodes with respect to education. There is kind of freedom. People aren't doing this because they're forced to do it. Um, it also relates to going to church as well uh, and the consumption of those type of goods as well. Uh, so what do you make of the sort of public good argument as well as, you know, you know, if people are doing it somewhat free? Now, again, they, over time, they might develop a salary or Patreon subscribers, and then they'll get, you know, money from that. And that might change it. Um, but I think Glenn Greenwell just started, for example, which really just started off writing a blog. Um, um, you know, he's well read and uh, like to break stories and stuff. And that, that's how he got his start. I, I mean, even though I don't agree with all of Glenn Greenwald says, I think he's sort of an honest, upfront journalist if they sort of still exist. Um, so what do you what do you make of this public good argument as and its failings, as well as those other comments with him? Well, I, I don't have much truck with the public goods argument. I think um, as Patreon and other things have shown, there's other funding models uh people what like producing stuff and they're happy to go and do it even if they're not paid as like a hobby i mean um and, and, and i think that they're in a way some of the more interesting people because well they can say what they want doesn't matter um when it comes to like npr or, or the bbc which i know more of um i mean the bbc does produce some good stuff i mean historically more so uh like dramas or whatever and sort of art things are, are pretty good uh, and also more historically i think uh i think you had a a group of people who were in the elites who basically ran the bbc who have more of a view of say that history was actually a discipline you could learn about it wasn't merely ideological and um they had the view that, you know, like art, for example, there were things that were important because of the innovation in the art, not like who produced it. So uh, have a much less sort of ideological uh, approach to things. Whereas um, now, of course, because of, well, especially the upper middle class media types of all ideology overall, then, of course, it becomes as terrible as it does. So, um no, I, there's, there's no reason per se why public, like taxpayer funded stuff production may not actually be particularly good. I mean, from an artistic perspective, you could make the claim that, you know, things are uh, produced which otherwise wouldn't be produced because they won't make as much money. And that's perfectly possible. The problem is you just don't have any feedback mechanism 
uh, to show that actually no, this is terrible. Uh, don't dip, don't make it because you can't because it's just using taxpayers' money. Um, now the BBC isn't exactly like that because you've got a license. The I mean, you, it, but the thing is, if you have a TV, you're supposed to buy pay the license fee. So even if you don't watch the BBC, so it's, it's basically a tax. Um, so they produce stuff which is uh, pretty good, but then they produce bad stuff. You can't really stop them. And then the BBC had been horrendous over a number of years but they also have still have the gall though to say that they're unbiased and it's in their charter that they are unbiased when it's clear that they are not in any way shape or form um i mean an example of that interestingly was there was some protests at the manchester united football club and some of the protesters went onto the pitch uh and and actually got a game cancelled and they were very much at pains to point out that these protesters were a minority and were not representative of all Manchester United fans. Uh, this was because the whoever was reporting on it actually had agreements with the uh, sentiments of the protesters. Uh, let's just shall we say that such sort of relative even handedness would not be um, be brought to bear on any lockdown protests. Um, so sorry anti-lockdown protests uh so yeah i mean it can produce some good stuff but there's no i mean it just means that because they're insulated they can produce lots of terrible stuff that no one really wants or is willing to pay for and you know there's nothing really stopping them from doing it i mean that's probably the main the main issue moving on here so alternative funding models i've sort of touched on that um and, and and as far as the claim itself you know, almost everyone who gets any money on the internet is going to be called a grifter at some point. Again, we're, we're so far immune to that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, all sorts of people from all across the ideological spectrum, the political spectrum, has gotten accused of this for better or for worse. Now, again, I'm not against it. People, people, people have a service to sell. That service happens to be ideas or information. Um, I mean, and this is this is in a, in a way what churches are selling, although some Catholics might disagree with that. Um, 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 but if you have, you're selling an idea of some kind, it's a service. Uh, uh, you get that service, you know, how that service gets produced. Well, you can do it privately um, for free on your free time, or you could do it funded through your viewers. And and the sort of how you get the money from the viewers to, to the people is sort of a complex labyrinth process the strictest raising is Patreon, but there's also the, the advertising model. And one thing that irritates me about this sort of known Chomsky left anarchist thing is a lot of the, the Chomsky views, those are the views, sort of cultural views, that are created by the corporate press and to some extent the publicly funded. So Chomsky writes a book like Manufacturing Consent, and today it's, it's somewhat it's somewhat annoyingly true in a way, but, but it's also true like this huge COVID nightmare for the past 18 months was drummed up largely by the corporate press to sort of fear mongering um continuously being reminded they just become servants of the ruling class but but the ruling class itself at times has certain views that he has anyway um so that's the annoying thing and everything that's brought up is and some of the founders of the social media companies neil ferguson was making this claim now again neil ferguson is a bit of a neocon um uh, is a neocon uh he's claiming that you know Many of these founders thought, you know, if we just started Facebook or YouTube, now there's other more conspiratorial origins of these companies, that everyone would just swap recipes and travel stories and photos. 
but yeah, I mean, Facebook sort of has, Facebook still has that. People still swap vacation photos. Although, interesting enough, that has sort of a jealousy aspect to it too. You know, you know, if, if, I think there's some happiness services that people who don't look at other people's vacation photos are better off, um, or things like that. Um, so, so some of these social media companies, you know, people thought that if they create them, would just sort of make the world a better place. But you know, interestingly enough. Some of the most popular videos on YouTube are like Alex Jones's five-hour interview of Joe Rogan, where he touches every known conspiracy. You know, like that—that that was something that was probably not predicted by the sort of, you know, left liberal founders of all these social media companies, um, which I find is quite interesting. I mean, I mean, a lot of movements wouldn't be possible without the YouTube internet types, podcast types, seeing the alt-right, the Bernie Sanders movement, the libertarian movement. Although that was a little pre-area, the libertarian that sort of performed. Um, although not entirely, but probably the Ron Paul movement, all those things, they're very much products of the internet, the internet era, for better or for worse. Um, so I do think there's an interesting way in which the opening up of media to very low op, low entry costs, in the same way the destruction of the Catholic Church caused thousands of Protestant church to deform, um, you get all sort of more niche tastes, like, you know, you know, and this is where the sort of... You, there's sort of lunatic books. Uh, there was the lady who ran for president, president of the Democrats. She's like a self-help guru. And then you also have, you know, other right-wing self-help gurus. And so, so, so all these sort of formats and sort of the conspiracy theories. So I, I think it's interesting. I, I don't pretty much care for a consensus take or sort of uh, a view, so to speak. Um, um, but I do think it's interesting that um, there was sort of this sort of liberal new atheist idea that if you just gave everyone the freedom to create whatever content, they would actually just gravitate toward the corporate content, um, which actually, if anything, has been the opposite case. My, my suspect is that certain channels on YouTube, if, if Alex Jones was allowed on YouTube, he'd probably have 100 million views if they didn't stifle him. Or, and, or, or if they gave him the same treatment that Stephen Colbert gets, you'd be centerfold every time. I mean, it has to be. So I do think, but I do think overall it has been an improvement sort of podcast YouTube scene than versus 20 years ago. This is one area which I disagree with the normie conservatives. Like you know, in the 1960s, you had much less freedom of communication. Uh, uh, now, there's other areas that might have been upside, um, but you know, you had four channels. You had a certain monopoly on newspapers. Now, the newspapers might have been more free, it, it, more independent with respect to each other. Um, but I, I still I still view the sort of recent invention of the Internet at all uh, to be an improvement, um, um, especially. If, but I'm willing to hear arguments against it so and so forth. So then do you have any arguments to make against for do you think this sort of, you know, this sort of Patreon uh, YouTube podcast exposure scene uh, the past 20 years has been a, a benefit, so to speak? I, I certainly think it's been a benefit. I spend a significant amount of time driving. Yeah. What do you make of this with them? Oh, it's 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 clearly been a benefit. Uh, I mean, there's so much more content out there. Obviously, there's lots of terrible stuff, but filter it out. Fire stuff is interesting. I mean, it, it, it's the same with the internet in general. I mean, there's loads of terrible stuff on the internet, but there's loads of good stuff. And trying to get access to the good stuff beforehand was very, very, very difficult. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Even trying to get hold of published books was hard work. Like, and, and these are sort of like, you know, dense academic tomes, you know, the not, um, not spicy sort of works, as it were. 
but they're just blooming difficult to get hold of. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the worst is probably worse, but is the better better? Possibly. Um, so I, it's just a case of trying to navigate it. Um, I, I see podcasts being far better. I mean, I suppose you could then set the argument against, oh, you're going into you get into uh, echo chambers. I suppose that would be the claim that people could get into echo chambers. But I mean, the corporate press is an echo chamber. I mean, it's just moderate. It's a moderate echo chamber in verticoms. So therefore socially acceptable. I mean, the number of people who are genuinely interested in finding out the truth about things has probably always been relatively little. So the fact that people get stuck in more sort of what extreme echo chambers isn't really much of an issue. Then I suppose you could say, ah, well, yes, but this is going to cause social problems. Well, that's just because you've got a large state and they should be split down into small ones so people can live with people they like. Uh, so, yeah, I, I see very few downsides to uh, the, the podcast scene. It could be that the only this is an interesting relationship with technology. It could be that the large states are only possible with large, uh, somewhat unified corporate press, you know, uh, hierarchies. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, you know, large states, there's a book like called The Discovery of France and the I think it's called The Pursuit of Italy, um, you know, and actually in the United States it used to be known as these United States um, and not as a conglomerate, it's just a conglomerate of different societies. So it could be the case that, you know, a usually unified society uh, it only exists because of of the corporate press. And actually, this is one of the ways in which I think YouTube at all um, has shattered that. Now, again, YouTube has its own censorship regime i'm fully aware of that but i i i think it's an improvement um some of them i uh, you know some of the things i i don't necessarily object to uh but that's just the nature of the beast so to speak and, I, and i'm fully advocate of alternative funds and again they might shut them down uh, that's also could happen uh but you know in in the lincoln in, during u.s civil wars tom and renzo points out that newspapers that didn't ran that ran certain articles weren't allowed to be run in the um in the mail um, um, and, and since they had a de facto monopoly on the mail, that you were just sort of, you were just sort of, the state sort of took, took, took you out of circulation more or less indirectly. Um, so what do you make of those comments? And then I, I, that, that's it for my comments. I, I, I think the, the grifting accusation is kind of lame in a way, because uh, 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 I think it's sort of, it's one of those things that might be true of everyone who's big enough on the internet. Uh, uh, if, if something's true of almost everyone, you can't really sort of single out and say, oh, well, you, you don't, you don't, you're not, who isn't a grifter of the, you know, the big podcast authors, they all sort of have money claims. And I don't think the sort of the private the sort of public models are any, any different either. That's another thing I don't think is any different. Tenured university professors are increasingly coward-like anyway. So like things that normally will give people sort of freedom in, in a sense, don't they actually do the opposite? They're actually more cowardly. So those are my overall comments. Swithin, do you have any final comments to wrap it up? Very interesting topic here. All I'd say is, I mean, I suppose what people ideally want is somebody who has the truth at their hearts and will have any, will, will be happy to fund anybody who says something interesting and won't sort of censor on a, anything other than a, a an objective quality basis and produce uh, works. But I mean, the, the, whether that guy's ever going to exist is minimal, especially if he's not, if he's got like free money to it to hand. 
um, from other people who don't want to give it to him, then um, yeah, that's kind of going to be that's not a particularly great incentive structure. I, as I say, I think the incentive structure of lots of people giving money because to be individuals I think are interesting, or even classical patronage. You know, rich guy, you actually work here, some money, do more of it. I mean, I think that's much more likely to get uh, new ideas, better ideas, um, truthful ideas than a huge bureaucratic uh, corporate entity, which basically universities have, t- have, uh, have, have turned into uh, these days. So, but yeah, uh, is everyone on the internet going to be a grift? Well, fine, yeah, but who isn't? I mean, it's, 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 it's such a trivial statement in most cases, unless you can point to evidence that they're just merely tailoring what they think on sort of like uh, information, sort of analysis, uh, sort of shows, which are, aim to find out the truth of things if it's if it's the case that they they deliberately don't do that and but do ourselves well, yeah well that's a grift and that's a problem unless there's evidence that that is actually what they're doing then i think saying that they're a grifter is just trivial or just an ad hominem really um that's that's all i'd um i i'd finish with really uh just now i thank everyone for listening if you would like this podcast, please uh, share and uh, subscribe to uh, to us. The more subscribers we get on YouTube and on Podbean, the higher we get up in the search rankings, and the more people can uh, listen to this and then hopefully give us money. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.